Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. A turbulent week stretches ahead, both domestically and internationally. Reading the runes, I have with me Yasmin Sirhan. Morning, Yasmin. Good morning, Alex. Yasmin, we have to start with the latest around the Ukraine crisis. Language from Washington now seems resigned to a Russian invasion. It's being presented very much as something that's already been decided and that if we manage to avert, it will be nothing short of a miracle. But every expert I've seen talk on this says that Putin has had big concessions by threatening action and that escalating the conflict has only downsides for him. So why are we still heading towards escalation? I I mean, it's a very good question, right? And I think it's the question that we've had for, for the last you know week and more. It feels like we're almost kind of waiting for someone to blink, right? And, and mm. you know, there, there's a lot of mixed narratives. You know, I was taking a look just on Twitter at a lot of the, the sort of narrative coming out of the Kremlin and out of Russia. And indeed, I was speaking to some Russian pollsters to really understand how, you know, everyday Russians are seeing this. And, and the way that they're framing this conflict is that actually it's Russia and Ukraine that are being dragged into war by the West and specifically by the United States. Obviously, we're, we're getting the, the exact opposite <laughs> narrative, you know, certainly at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend, but also from the United States and Europe. It's this notion that actually it's it's Putin that's, that's doing the dragging, as it were. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say if, you know, is, is it the desire that, you know, Putin is basically trying to cause a lot of stir to get people talking about Russia only to say, look, they're overreacting? Or is it the hope, as, you know, the U.S. has said time and again, that, you know, they can simply cause an escalation or find an excuse for one by, you know, causing issues in the Donbass and the eastern region? So mm. I, I think that very much the U.S. concern, which was echoed over the weekend, is that, you know, the U.S. warnings of false flag operations, that we're already kind of seeing them play out in, in a lot of the sort of exchanges that were, were taking place in the East and that, you know, there, there's a concern that Putin might point to, you know, one of those explosions or something and say, aha, look, you know, they're, they're causing issues. Yeah, yeah. So they've given us a reason to go in. Emmanuel Macron seems to have brokered a Putin-Biden summit news dropped after midnight our time. Mm, yes, a middle of the night diplomacy for, for yeah. the French president. <laughs> I mean, this was... In one way, a card that was always going to be played if needed, you know, a face-to-face meeting with a president is something that Putin has been pushing for and that the West was always going to offer as a, uh, as a sort of last measure to avert an invasion. Is the message coming out that this kind of coercive diplomacy actually works? I think the message it sends is that any diplomacy is better than the alternative, right? I mean, you know, as you say, I I think they were really kind of holding out this kind of meeting as a last resort. And it feels very much from the comments that we've heard over the weekend that, you know, the US and others feel like we're in last resort territory. Now, it's worth noting, of course, that this summit, which, which, as you noted, Macron brokered um, uh, in the middle of the night, um, is contingent on Putin not invading Ukraine. Um, and the details of the summit, we're going to hear more about it, I think, later in the week after US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, meet in what was a pre-planned meeting. So effectively, 
what this summit does is ensure, hopefully, if if Putin is serious about this meeting, that Russia doesn't invade Ukraine before Thursday, right? So I, I think really what it also suggests is that we're really playing for time. Whether anything comes out for it, I mean, based off of everything we've heard and obviously the litany of meetings that have been happening between the Russian president and world leaders in recent weeks, who's to say, right? But but what it does do is, is potentially hold off that notion of a looming invasion, even if it's just days away. And this is a point that's, I think, mentioned rarely in this debate and should be mentioned more. Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in 1994 after the breakup of the Soviet Union. It had a lot of nuclear weapons, although the Kremlin still held the codes. And it did so after receiving guarantees of protection from the UN Security Council 5. You know, China and France signed letters that had slightly weaker guarantees in them. The UK, the US and Russia signed what's known as the Budapest Memorandum. Zelensky claimed in Munich that Ukraine feels abandoned. Where does this leave the argument for non-proliferation? How can the West now turn around and say to Iran, to Pakistan, to Mm. North Korea, to anyone that is trying to develop nuclear weapons, you don't need to worry, we'll look after you, when they can point to Ukraine and say, not if someone big picks on us, you do nothing. Yeah, it sets a very poor and and I think potentially dangerous precedent, doesn't it? Because, you know, I I think Zelensky was quite understandably very angry at Munich and, you know, was was he was throwing around the A word appeasement quite a lot, which obviously kind of draws us back to the Munich before World War II. My colleague, Anne Applebaum, had a great piece that's up on the conference. She was there speaking to people. And, you know, she had this just line that I think really sums it up. You know, in the meantime, despite everything that was said, everything that was promised and everything that was discussed, Ukraine will fight alone. And and I think that's, you know, the the overall message that that vis-a-vis the argument for non-proliferation that is what this whole saga in Ukraine kind of sends that, you know, yes, there will be words of encouragement, words of support, threats of sanctions. But, you know, what Zelensky has been asking for is, and what he's questioned world leaders in Munich over the weekend was, why not sanctions now? You've been saying for weeks mm, on mm. end that an invasion is imminent. We see the troops at the border. We now know that Putin, you know, saying that he would draw back some of the troops. That's no longer the case. Just look to Belarus and the tens of thousands of troops there. You know, if 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 not now, when effectively mm. being the question, yeah, yeah. is it the case that sanctions only come when it's too late, when Russian troops are already on Ukrainian soil? But, you know, that that's the line that that I think the U.S. And, and its partners are sticking with. And Zelensky very much wants to frame this in a broader way, right, which I think is kind of what your question is doing as well, that, you know, this isn't simply about Ukrainian security. This is also about, you know, the broader security of Europe. What what starts in Ukraine may not necessarily end in Ukraine. Now, moving to another international issue, but on its domestic dimension, Boris Johnson is poised to end all COVID restrictions, this coming week. Is this based, do you think, primarily on public health considerations or political ones? What's what's your instinct tell you? Well, if my instinct was being charitable, I would say a little bit of both. I mean, you know, it's obviously no secret that this is a government that is in desperate need of some good news. You know, after the last few weeks of Partygate, I think to, you know, come around and tell the British people, hey, look, you know, we're entering the new you phase too of the can pandemic. party now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone's going to be able to party. It's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think there there is a desire, obviously, to kind of, you know, after 
coming on two years of this pandemic to to basically shift to, I think, what the government has described as, you know, less government legal mandates, more your decision, like with every other illness that you get that, you know, people need to, there will be guidance, of Mm, course, you mm. know, telling people to do the right thing. But we would hope, and I think this is the government's hope that after two years, people know that if you test positive for COVID, that you need to stay home or you should do. Hopefully, I mean, at least for myself personally, you know, just as someone who who touch wood really doesn't want to get COVID and who who knows many people who have that, you know, this is not something I want to get. And I'd like to think that, you know, our etiquette post pandemic is that, you know, even if you have a sniffle, you wear your mask, you, you know, you try to spare your friends and loved ones and strangers. Yeah, the, and- the, there's already noises, I'm afraid, from the usual backbenchers that, you know, we need to do away with masks completely, that things won't return to normal until people are made to leave their masks at home. So uh, do you think the Queen testing positive, it was announced yesterday for COVID, mm. has changed the calculus at all? Does it, does it create a sort of peril? for Johnson at a time when he declares effectively he got COVID done. Does it remind people that it's not done at all? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a really unfortunate backdrop. And, you know, it's, of, of course, bad news in and of itself. I mean, I know my yeah. my, my stomach kind of dropped when I saw the push notification because, you know, the, the Queen is, is coming on 96 in April. And, you know, obviously the monarch, this being her jubilee year, I think there's, you know, a lot of concern around, around her safety. And mm. yeah, I mean, I, I think it sends an unfortunate backdrop, but it also also sends, I think, just as you said, an important message that, you know, yes, even if these restrictions are going away, even if we're going to, quote unquote, learn to live with COVID, that unfortunately learning to live with COVID means that important people in your life, maybe yourself, maybe even the queen, are still going to get this disease. Now, hopefully we have better treatments. We'll be able to handle it better. I mean, that's the hope, right? But yeah, that this it, we're, we're not out of the woods. And, and indeed, anyone, even the monarch, can still get this thing. Do you think business is going to react by pushing people to get back to full office working or having discovered a model that's more mixed and probably has lower costs? Is that likely to persist? Well, I can tell you from my own experience, I'm speaking to you from my dining room table where I have Mm. been since March 2020. (laughs) Judging, you know, just anecdotally, having spoken to friends in a variety of sectors, it really does seem like mixed is kind of the way I think a lot of people are going. And, And I think that's because, you know, We've kind of come to a point two years on into this thing that, you know, people now know that they can be just as, if not more productive from home. Obviously, I think a lot of people are quite keen to get back to something resembling quote unquote normalcy, but but I, I don't I don't even know if any business really has the safety capacity or otherwise to take in everyone at once again. But yeah, I certainly wouldn't mind a mixed model. I mean, I think it, it's it's nice to have the combination, but also to crucially, I mean, speaking for, for the many people who, who are like in tight and small flats, we've been talking about working from home, but honestly, I've been living from work for the past two years. And I like my living room. I love I that. I love back. that very much. I've been living from work. Plus, it's 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 sort of a seller's market in terms of labor at the moment. You know, there mm. are big, big shortages and big salary hikes in in certain industries so maybe it might be that workers begin to demand a mixed model 
or that businesses begin to offer it as a sort of perk. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, talk of like the great resignation and things like that. I think also this pandemic, I mean, at least for me, I mean, I feel like this is the case for a lot of my friends. It's forced a lot of people to see like, you know, really reassess their priorities. Right. And and I think particularly when it comes to, to kind of work and, and the lifestyle and work life balance. I mean, I think these are things that increasingly matter a lot to people. There is also an expectation and this, I think, causes me a little bit more apprehension. There's an expectation that free testing will be withdrawn. How will we know how the unlocking is going if we don't monitor how it's going? Well, we won't, right? It's definitely given me pause as well. In fact, right before we got on this call, I actually ordered another box in anticipation it may be the last that I get um, for free. But but yeah, you know, I mean, I think that the way that the government has sort of framed it is that, look, we're spending, I think, at a rate of two billion a month is apparently what they're spending on testing. So, you know, I think that the way they see it is that that's just a really difficult number to put on the taxpayer. Uh, but obviously, you know, Britain, I mean, I know at least speaking from, you know, my home country in the United States, which has only just and not even to the same level, but, you know, sent out you know, I think a handful of free tests to every household, Britain was kind of seen as the example. People were literally pointing to, to Britain as the example when, you know, the, the government was like, what do you want us to do? Send these tests to your home? And they're like, actually, yes, that's exactly what we want you to do. I don't know how much these tests are ultimately going to cost. I, it was, it's my understanding that the government would like to keep them free for, for kind of, um, I think, people over 80. So, you know, obviously people who, who are perhaps at, at at the highest risk. And, and I think that's obviously very advisable and good. However, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, making tests inaccessible to some people who may not be able to afford to, to pay for them yeah. um, and, and therefore, you know, being kind of put in the position of having to take more risk. I mean, perhaps that is what quote unquote living with the virus means. But I think as you rightly noted, that also means not really knowing when you're living with the virus yeah. where until to, it's too late. To me, that means entirely the opposite. It's actually ignoring the virus, pretending it's not there, the monitoring aspect of it. If you are serious about living with COVID, the monitoring aspect of it is key. We shall see how it shakes out. Westminster is back after recess, talking about MPs. In the context of Partygate... Do you think it's safer for the government right now when MPs are at home talking to their constituents or when they're in Westminster talking to each other? Because <laughs> I can see positives and negatives to both. It's one of those things where I, I almost feel like so much is happening, but then we kind of get reminded like, oh, right, yes, there's this thing. And, you know, in the beginning, I remember thinking, you know, especially at the sort of the height of all the scandals, you know, it felt like we were getting a leak every single day mm -hmm. that this was terminal. But now and it that's feels like it's changed, almost been dragged right? out for so long. Right, yeah, because I mean, you know, we've been just waiting for inquiry after inquiry, right? That's kind of yeah. the government's main message. Wait for this, wait for that. And, you know, we're currently, yeah. as, as I'm sure listeners know, waiting for, for, the, for the Met to kind of determine whether the prime minister did indeed break rules and will or will not be fined and, and sort of what that means. But, you know, if, if the strategy was to hope that by drawing this out for so long that people would talk about something else, anything else, then maybe that works. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, he seems, I mean, as I keep saying, he seems to have flattened the curve. Uh, when it comes to scandals, <laughs> basically he squashed that sobrero by by making them stretch out over a longer period. He has ended up avoiding a peak scandal, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and, and it seems to me, I agree with you completely, the prevailing week, wind in the last week at least has been that he can survive this, whereas three weeks ago 
it seemed he was toast. But the findings of the police investigation will start to emerge. They might even start to emerge later this week. Johnson on Sunday refused to answer the in-principle question of whether his position would still be tenable if he was fined. 17 times Sophie Raworth asked him. So he seems determined to cling on, and some cabinet members seem to support that position, although some others are privately declaring they could not. I guess the general question is, can a constitution that is based largely on people doing the honourable thing survive someone this dishonourable? Or are we looking at a fundamental reshaping of politics at this moment? I think it is a reshaping in a way because, you know, whether or not, you know, we're we're in or out of this pandemic, no matter what rules go away, come back, you know, I, I think what's kind of fundamental to democracies anywhere, including this country, of course, is that, you know, everyone is held to the same standard. And that's, and, you know, of course, we know that inequalities exist. We know that some people with means, you know, I, I had a piece out recently about how, you know, experiencing and learning to live with the pandemic is very different if you're, you know, among the super wealthy. We know these things exist, but it's quite different even if your leader happens to be super wealthy or super posh or whatever. You know, there's this notion that, you know, they set the rules, they live by them as well. And and I think what what this whole scandal did and, and what this prime minister did was kind of really upset that expectation and offend it even. It it makes it, I think, very difficult to glean what anyone might resign over now. Let's move on, because it's quite depressing. I've depressed myself. (laughs) If there's anything we have a lot of in this country, it's weather. And there's another storm, Franklin, that uh, uh, overnight caused flooding in Northern Ireland and the north of England. And there's a fourth one, Gladys, um, that may also graze us in the next few days. Many people are without power. Is this an underrated electoral risk for the government, do you think, with local elections only weeks away? Is it creating pockets of people who just see the government as useless in a really practical way? We're not talking now about scandals. We're not talking about their ethics, their morals. We're talking about people that think it shouldn't take 10 days for their power to be restored. And the government is failing at that really basic level. With everything going on, I nearly forgot that we actually are a couple of months away from local elections. Yeah, I mean, look, mm. I mean, I think it compounds into everything, right? And and yet, certainly, if you are among those who who yeah don't have things as basic as power, um, or or you know, kind of the, a litany of other issues that that unfortunately come from a lot of these extreme weather events, then then yeah, absolutely, I think that's. That's a concern. And look, if I were, if I were the government, I, I really try to just <laughs> feel like even just to be seen to, to have a handle on kind of even just the basics, like you can't just focus on the big tickets like Ukraine and even the, the pandemic to an extent and stuff like that. I mean, there there are mm, mm. there there are sort of the closer, literally the closer to home crises as well. Another news, Liz Truss is meeting with Mara Sefcovic today in Brussels to negotiate further on the Northern Ireland protocol. Now, the noises are very positive from their two teams and very, very negative from DUP politicians. Do you think a decision has been made to actually ignore the DUP hecklers, as the government might see them, and press ahead with finding a workable version of the protocol? It, it, It seems to me the mood music has changed slightly since Liz Truss 
has taken over? My immediate response, and this is as someone who unfortunately has been following this particular story as much as I probably should have, is that I feel like this wouldn't be the first time the DUP has kind of found itself being ignored, right? I I just feel like this issue kind of, I mean, it it felt like it was really kind of front and center for a while, and then it kind Mm. of just slipped. You know, what's the alternative, right? If, other than trying to make this protocol, which was agreed by both yeah. sides, work. Yeah. Now hardly seems like the time, particularly when we're facing, you know, what could be, you know, a potential war in Europe yes, um, yes, to, to sort of start fighting with, with our European partners and neighbors over a border that as far as they're concerned, the, the situation mm. was already agreed to, right? The other thing that caught my eye is the national insurance hike, which is due to come in on the 1st of April, a mere weeks away, and just before those local elections. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer tried to draw a line under it, writing this joint piece that said, oh, you know, we have to, we have to raise it in order to fund social care, etc. And they tried to say the matter is closed, there's going to be no U-turn. But I've been surprised that the issue has persisted, both for many backbenchers in the Conservative Party, obviously for the opposition, but also for some of the right-wing media that would traditionally be supportive of this government. They continue to slate it over this proposed national insurance hike. Do you think there is space for a U-turn? Or do you think they're going to press ahead? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been seeing reports about a lot of unease at the Treasury. And I I think for all the reasons you just outlined, um, understandably so, right? I mean, I think this is a government that, as as we know very well, is is not um, immune to Um, U-turns. They've done them many times. and, And I think given the... Given the fact that, as you say, you know, an election is approaching and obviously this is a government that, again, would very much like to kind of be putting forward as much good news as it can ahead of that poll. I I wouldn't personally be surprised if if there was a U-turn on that. Obviously, I I think that would cause a lot of issues between number 10 and, and number 11, as it were. Finally, Trump. And I and I love the fact that Trump has become a finally item. You know, he occupies the same position in news as a video of a cat wearing a tutu. So Truth Social is set to launch today. Trump, his family and his associates are increasingly in legal jeopardy. The stories emerging that are outlandish about him flushing away papers. Hillary's making a comeback on the speaking circuit. She made quite a scathing little speech. Uh, about it all at the weekend. And the midterms are only months away. What do you make of this whirl and what should our listeners look out for in US politics over the next few weeks? I mean, it launches today. Um, so I guess we'll we'll find out soon. I went on my app store just to see if I could find it and I couldn't yet. So I don't know if it's something that's kind of being limited to, to a US audience for now. But yeah, it launches today. And um, according to uh, former US Congressman Devin Nunes, um, he who, who heads up the Trump Media and Technology Group, um, he told Fox News um, that they're, they're hoping it will be fully operational in the US by the end of March. So you said finally, Trump, but actually, I think we're going to find that we're going to be hearing a lot more from the president now that right, right. he's he's back on us you know the only way it would appear that he could get back on social media was by creating his own so um that is something <laughs> that you know and, and i think as a result you know we we remember it wasn't that long ago that he had quite a penchant for kind of tweeting 
you know, every and all thought that we're going to hear from him on a litany of things, whether it's, as you say, the the increasing legal battles, um, you know, facing kind of potential investigations with regard to his business, but but also I believe um, a D.C. federal district court ruled that um, lawsuits intended to hold the former president to account uh, for the the uh, the Capitol um, insurrection on the yeah, 6th yeah. of January, um, that those can proceed. So, you know, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot about him. And indeed, with the midterms, I mean, look, this is still, even if Trump isn't going to be on the ballot, this is still very much his Republican Party. And I think we should be under no illusion that especially as those elections near, and as I'm sure our listeners know, U.S. elections, unlike virtually everyone else, they spread out for ages. So, you know, you bring up the midterms now, but you're probably <laughs> like the rest of the U.S. We're going to start talking about them now. And I think obviously there's going to be questions of Trump endorsements of certain candidates. Um, obviously, a lot of attention going to be paid on whether the Democrats can keep um, both houses of Congress. Um, that is, I think, you know, a lot of there's a lot of doom and gloom, I think, on the Democratic side. Mm, I think they're, mm. they're not as as certain of, of that. Um, and so then, you know, that brings into a question, well, then what can what can the president do with, with the rest of his, time, his term? Thanks for joining us, Yasmin Sirhan. Always a pleasure. And that's the end of this edition of Start Your Week. If you found this podcast useful, then you can help us out and spread the word. Why not forward the link to this episode to three friends you think might enjoy it? It's really easy. There's a share button in every app, or you could share it on social media. Nothing wins people over like a personal recommendation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andre with Yasmin Sirhan. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.